Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to give to this thing called the Transmitting Instinctual Bias. This is the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I think we're going to continue our trend of talking about two movies, juxtapositioning, juxtaposing, perhaps, two movies that uh, probably nobody's ever talked about before in the same way. And uh, TJ Daw. You picked these movies, um, and I think they were excellent choices for the transmitting domain. Tell us what the movies are and briefly why you picked these. We're going to be looking at Purple Rain and Moana. So as you mentioned, two movies that have never been on a double bill together. So I think both of these movies highlight complementary and different aspects of what transmitting is all about. Yeah. This is what I loved about uh, your choices here, is that they show why... From my selfish perspective, none of the traditional names really work to describe what's going on in this domain, right? Uh, at least fully, okay? But I think you're right. It captures two different elements, um, and we're certainly going to go into that in depth. Um, I have a question for TJ and Gracia. Um, TJ, I point a gun at you, and I give you a choice, okay? Uh, you have to watch either rewatch either Grease or Purple Rain. What's your pick? Oh God. Uh, yeah, I, I was trying to decide if Greece is now my second least favorite film I've ever seen. I mean, it was purple rain was entertaining and it, it's like, it's kind of like watching a train wreck or kind of like watching like a kindergarten, uh, school performance. Like it's so bad. It's almost impressive. TJ T. Daw. Counter. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I, I, we'll, we'll get into this more when we talk about Purple Rain specifically, but this was a movie I only saw for the first time a handful of years ago, right after Prince died. And I was not a Prince fan growing up. I also didn't dislike him. You know, I right. just didn't have any investment in it. So watching it, the contrast between how unbelievably incandescent he is as a musical performer and how mediocre he is as an actor, combined with the tin ear of the script and the clunkiness of the directing and everything like that is just this bizarre mishmash that I don't think I can think of another movie that has the same two opposite things going on. Quick reminder, um, TJ Gracia, how old were you in 1984? Uh, I was negative one years old. <laughs> and TJ Daw? That's the summer that I turned 10. When this movie came out, I was nine. And it was restricted, so there's no way I would have been able to see it. Uh, your your parents probably would have had, uh, you know, youth child services uh, called on them had they taken you to see this movie at 10 years old. But um, again, as someone who's a little bit older than the two of you and someone who saw this movie again in a drive-in movie theater in the summer of 1984, I have a slightly different take on it. I will agree with everything you said about everything that happens in between the musical numbers, right? Just as bad acting as you will ever see. But everybody else, not only were they not actors, but their characters had their real names, right? Every every character in this movie had their real life name as their stage name. So I don't even think they were trying to make this an actor's movie, right? It just was, we need something to take up time in between the performances. But I highly encourage anybody who is interested in, number one, the transmitting instinctual bias to, um, to watch this movie, okay? Um, and anybody who likes music to watch this movie. So I'll say more about uh, Purple Rain in a few minutes, but uh, uh, any other comments? Um, I also love the fact that his actual name is Prince. He didn't change it to Prince because that just sounds so regal and shiny and special the way a lot of transmitting fours might. Uh, he was born and christened or baptized Prince Rogers Nelson. 
That's his real name. He shortened it to Prince. He turned it into a mononym as a performer, later turned it into a symbol, and then turned it back to Prince. But yeah, it's almost like he was destined to be this shiny god of musical genius. And that he was. And, and, and I'll share with you guys. So again, being of a certain age, um, I was, you know, a contemporary when, you know, Prince's music was coming out. And, uh, you know, Prince was somebody that people knew about, you know, 1999 was a very big hit. And yes, it was made in 1982. And it was one of those things, kind of like with Orwell's 1984, right? For years and years, it was like, oh, that's so f in the future that there's going to be spaceships by the time we get there, okay? And then in 1984, everybody was reading 1984 and listening to the Bowie song, 1984. And the same thing happened in 1999, as TJ said, that this futuristic song was now, you know, um, the year that we were in. Now, when Purple Rain came out, it was a huge, huge hit. I mean, it's uh, you. Uh, there is nothing today, and we might have talked about this before on the podcast, but uh, we're talking about an era of monoculture back then, right? Uh, the TV show MASH, and again, I think we talked about this before. Last episode of the TV show MASH in the early 80s was watched by 86 million people which does not happen for anything these days, okay? So everything is so segmented today that nobody has kind of a shared culture and a shared language about things. That was not the case when this movie and album came out. It was a huge, huge hit. And it came out at the same time as Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which was a huge, huge hit as well. And these two albums dominated the radio waves at the time. I mean, you could not turn on a radio without hearing Prince and Bruce Springsteen and then Prince again, because I think there were five singles off of this album. Uh, only three songs were not released as singles, and I think almost everything on uh, Born in the USA was released as a single. Anyway, huge, huge hits. And the movie was a big success, right? It, it cost $7 million to make. I don't know what they did with that $7 million, because it does not show in, you know, in, in the movie itself, uh, but it made over $70 million. Um, so why does this movie represent the transmitting domain? Uh, I, I think, um, so the transmitting instinctual bias is what most people refer to as the sexual instinct or the one-to-one -one instinct. And when I was working with the Enneagram earlier, early on, you know, 15 years or more ago, I started really wrestling with that terminology. Okay. One reason, of course, is that you can't go into organizations where I normally work and start talking about somebody being a sexual subtype. Okay. Even back then you couldn't do it. You certainly couldn't do it now. Um, and yet the one-to-one -one term didn't seem to capture what was happening here. But I also realized that the, 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 the term sex doesn't capture everything that's going on here too, as you alluded to a few minutes ago, TJ. In order to understand what's happening here, we have to think about how evolution works. And evolution is a very simple algorithm. That which increases the probability of reproduction tends to get reproduced. Okay, So when there's an adaptation or a behavior in an organism, and it increases the chance of reproduction, then any organism with that trait will tend to pass on its genes. Okay, so most of the behaviors that we're talking about when we're talking about the three instinctual biases have something to do with evolution and their role therein. The preserving domain is all about behaviors that increase the probability that I'll stay alive long enough to reach the age of viability of my offspring. The navigating domain, which we talked about last time, is a bunch of behaviors that increase the probability that I'll successfully navigate my social environment, again, so I don't get ostracized and kicked out of the tribe and eaten by lions, because then my offspring would not reproduce if I had any. The transmitting domain is a cluster of behaviors that increase the likelihood of me being able to pass on something to you, whether those are genes or whether they are my ideas, my creations, my concepts, etc. 
Okay, so it's related to a broad spectrum of behaviors that increase the probability of reproduction in some way. And sex is only part of that because there's not a whole lot of sex in Moana. Right. And, uh, you know, for reasons we don't even have to get into. Okay, But, you know, and and neither of these movies are really about deep, intense one to one relationships. Okay, sure, there's a romance and, you know, in Purple Rain and there's a friendship in Moana, but that's not what's happening here. Both of these movies have to do with behaviors and attitudes and affects that increase the probability that I can pass something on to you. Now, if this was just what we would call a sexual instinctual bias, or sexual instinct, then yeah, Purple Rain works, right? I mean, we could make that case because this movie is all about sex. And quite frankly, Prince was sex on a stick, right? I mean, that guy was just, just oozed sexuality from every pore of his being, okay? Um, and, you know, again, this this is not a living room movie, right? Meaning this is not a, a you know, a video that you watch where the kids might walk by, right? Um, even though there's not any real profanity in it, you know, not, not much profanity, but you know, certain scenes you're watching this and you're thinking, uh, yeah, I shouldn't be watching that guy up on stage doing those things, right? <laughs> you know, it's just too creepy. Uh, so what we're talking about here when we talk about the... Um, transmitting instinctual bias is a domain filled with a bunch of behaviors expressed differentially, meaning some people who are in this, have this as a bias, are more focused on sex. Others are more focused on other aspects of it. But it's all about behaviors that will get me noticed in some way so I can do the kind of things that are required to spread something. You know, I'm sure we'll get into this when we're talking about the fine points and how the transmitting instinct breaks down. But one of the phrases that I jotted down in preparation for this was a big part of the transmitting instinct is not just a desire, it's a drive to yes. make an impact and to make an impression. Yes. It's And it's a fundamental drive that when we get to Moana, we'll say more about that because I think that's just such an important part of that movie. But it's like, it's undeniable. It's not something that I do because my parents want me to do this. It's not something that I do because I I have been socialized to believe that this is a good thing to do. It's just there. And yes. if I fight it, it will fight me back and it will win. Yes. And if I stifle yeah. it too long, it'll go rotten inside and make me miserable and maybe even crazy. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Great point. And so the, the thing I want to say on that is that um, there's a tendency among some who talk about this to uh, poeticize that drive, right? To see it as its own, you know, sort of Elan Vital of some sort, right? Some independent creative life force uh, that permeates the universe. Uh, Ken Wilber talks about Eros, for example. Right. Um, and that is a is great poetic language. Right. It's great spiritual, illustrative language, but it's not really good scientific language. And it can confuse us about what's going on. And I'm not I'm not saying this to disagree with anything you said, TJ. You're you're absolutely right. It is an impulse. I just don't want to think about it as a independent force of some sort, right? It's one of these adaptations that is related to this domain. You're absolutely right. I must, must, must assert myself. And that's one of the subdomains that we talk about is this assertiveness, right? This going after of things um, that is in this domain. Prince in his first motion picture. Before he created the music, he lived every bit of it. Okay, so uh, TJ Dahl, tell us, give us a synopsis of the movie Purple Rain. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so here's the very short version of what Purple Rain is about. It came out in 1984. It is somewhat based on Prince's early rise in his career. He plays a character who is only ever referred to as the kid. 
who fronts a band in Minneapolis, lives with his parents. The band has a regular gig at a prestigious club downtown where it's said that some of the bands who break there go on to make it big. There's a rival band leader called Morris who tries to oust him. And the two of them compete not only for a regular spot at this club, but for the love and attention of Apollonia, who's a new girl in town with musical ambitions of her own. In the end, the kid gives such a dazzling performance that it wins him and his band a continued spot in the club. And of course, he gets the girl. So TJ Daw, from your perspective, tell a little bit about how this movie demonstrates. Why, why did you pick this? Well, because... As I mentioned, I hadn't seen this growing up. I watched this after Prince died in 2016. So an independent movie theater in Vancouver screened it. And I thought, you know what? Major cultural figure, major cultural movie, never seen it. Let's go see it. And it was pretty well attended. And I was just so impressed by the musical performances in it, even though they were of songs that aren't close to my heart. They didn't bring back a lot of memories and fondness and anything like that. So just completely on their own terms, those performances of those songs knocked me out and made such an impression, not only because Prince's stage persona is very blatantly sexual, but just because he's so talented. He really delivers on all possible levels that it was just like, this is just undeniable. It's impossible not to be won over by this guy's sexual, magnetic talent and force. Couple months later, there was an outdoor movie theater screening, like the big inflatable screen in a big park quite near where I live. So I went to see it there with an audience, people on picnic blankets, maybe a thousand people, and the exact same thing happened. And it builds on what we said before, which is everything other than the musical performances is utterly mediocre. So it seems like it's going to be the worst movie you've ever seen. And then the musical performances are so insanely good, particularly the two songs he does at the very end, that you just leave walking on air thinking like, whoa, what did I just see? How lucky am I to live in the same world at the same time that this mythological figure existed? And then the movie, you have likened the transmitting instinct. Well, you've likened like the various instinctual biases to things we can observe in a group of peacocks. This movie can very <laughs> accurately be reduced to a peacock tail fanning contest between two competing peacocks. Yes. So the rival yes. musical leader, Morse Day, is portrayed as somewhat of a buffoon. Like he's vain, he has this high squawk laugh, almost like he's a bird, like perhaps an actual peacock. So it's who can shine the brightest? Who can shine the brightest to impress the club owner? And who can shine the brightest to wow the crowd? And who can shine the brightest to, uh, to get the girl? It is very blatantly just a contest between two peacocks fanning their tails. Who's got the shiniest? Who's got the brightest? Who's got the most colorful peacock tail? And how can they furl it around? Who's going to win? So I, I got a couple of scenes that came to mind uh, for me that really exemplify the uh, transmitting domain. And they are both. And l let me say first, um, trigger warnings um, should be made when going to watch this movie because there are some things occurring that even for that time were a little, eh, I don't know that we would go there, right? I mean, early on in the movie, um, Morris Day's uh, assistant, Jerome, throws a woman into a garbage dumpster. Um, there's, you know, um, uh, abuse and battery throughout uh, not only Prince's father beating his wife, but Prince striking Apollonia a couple of times. And for me, that was one of the most glaring not just offenses of the movie, but weak points that she would keep coming back, right, in that uh, sort of situation. But, you know, again, different times. Um, but like I said, even then it was like, oh, yeah, I don't know about this. Um, so trigger warnings. But the two scenes that jumped out most for me are, um, again, like every second of the movie. But if I have to pick two scenes, it's the, um, the performance of the beautiful ones the song which is one of only three songs that was not actually released on a single and it's a, a song that um where he really um expresses his vocal range right and he's singing this song rolling around on the stage and it did seem it was one of those things where i felt like yeah i, I shouldn't be watching this right i mean it just was so overwhelmingly sexual right um di different in a way that uh, Darling Nikki was, right? The performance of Darling Nikki is clearly a hypersexual song and his performance of it was almost pornographic. But 
for me, that wasn't as moving because of the mean-spiritedness behind that song in the context of the movie, right? It was meant to be insulting and humiliating to Apollonia. So it's a song I love, despite the lyrics, uh, you know, or the graphicness of the lyrics, but it's hard to watch in that scene. But for me, the beautiful ones was this amazing performance where he, you know, starts shrieking into this falsetto. And it made me think of a lot of the kind of music I like that I refer to as uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning music. And what I mean by that, there are, you know, there are artists through the history of popular music who were torn between the temptations of Saturday night and the need for salvation presented on Sunday morning. Okay, so I think of, um, for example, Al Green, right, of, uh, um, of uh, Marvin Gaye, of Johnny Cash, right, people who were torn between this life of debauchery and this life of trying to find God or some greater meaning. And I think Prince is in that tradition, in a way, even though his quote-unquote religion is less traditional, okay, um, John Coltrane is another one that I would put into that category. And those are among some of my favorite musicians. So for me, that song was really moving. But it was just that performance was just so nothing at all left inside, right? I mean, that was just a song where he put everything out there, more so, I think, even than the other songs, right? So for me, I think that was a really great example of a transmitting scene. And the other one was the Morris Day song, The Bird. Okay, uh, I agree with you, TJ. Morris Day was a also very transmitting, not as clearly not as sexual as Prince was or the kid was, um, but probably a transmitting three compared to Prince's clearly transmitting four. And um, but to your point earlier, just to show the sort of animalistic quality beyond humans in which we see these things is, to your point earlier, it's a peacock and it's a bird. They're literally flapping their wings as they're singing, right? Uh, it was a mating dance, okay? Um, so those two scenes for me really captured this um, in a great way. I think that can speak in some ways to just because someone is transmitting doesn't mean they're good at it necessarily. <laughs> this is right. So the scene when Morris, I forget where if they're at, in his limo or at the bar or wherever they are, but he's trying to kind of like woo Apollonia and he's trying to impress her. And clearly she's not impressed. He's making kind of a buffoon of himself. And then contrasting that with later as the kid is trying to woo her and, you know, he's much smoother and he, she's more intrigued by him. So I thought it was a good demonstration of this broadcasting versus narrow casting of the yes. transmitter. And it's like yes. putting out a signal to the whole audience and then, this one person that they're both trying to key on a, you know, really the whole performance is really about her and they're both trying to win her. Yes. And the kid is much more uh, proficient <laughs> at, at putting his tail feathers out than Morris is. <laughs> it certainly was. Uh, so what other scenes jumped out for you guys? Um, one really just brief moment. It isn't even a scene, but it's just part of the movie opens with the performance of Let's Go Crazy. And within the song, they intercut two others scenes of like Apollonia showing up in the cab or Morris Day getting ready, getting dressed in his apartment. And one of the scenes they show, just a brief clip, is Prince riding up on his purple motorcycle on the sidewalk past the lineup of everybody who's waiting to get into the club where he's going to perform. So of course they recognize him as he goes. You know, how can you mistake Prince without a helmet on a purple motorcycle? He didn't have to go on the sidewalk. That's very much a choice of his. And of course they all cheer as he goes by. They're so excited to see him even though ostensibly within the story, he's not a big star at the time. Right. He's one of three and then eventually four competing bands in this one club. But he chooses to do that. Why? Because it makes an impression. There's yes. a reason he's on a motorcycle. There's, an, a reason he's, there's a reason he's on a custom purple motorcycle is I want you to be impressed and it works. Yes. And there's there's a reason he was dressed by like Louis the Fourteenth uh, throughout the movie as well. I mean, the uh, clothes that he wears, uh, just so everybody knows, uh, people did not dress that way in 1984, right? They did have the flock of seagull haircuts, that sort of thing. But nobody but Prince dressed like Prince uh, at that time. 
Yeah, another brief thing, just getting back to Morris Day, is I think it's in the first song that they show him doing with his band. First of all, the entire band is doing choreography, as is Prince's band. Yes. That's not something you see on stage too often anymore. But they And they have coordinated outfits. At least Morris Day's band does, the time. So they're, they're moving together. They're dressed together. It is showmanship. It's not just about the yes. music itself. It's about how can I entertain? How can I up the ante? Which was very much the tradition of a lot of black mm-hmm. music. I mean, that's how it was at yes. the Apollo. You know, they were variety yes. shows. And the more you could wow the audience, the likelier you were to be invited back and put higher on the bill and get paid more. Uh, Sam Cooke, the great soul singer, originally started as a gospel singer. And I read a biography of him where it talked about how Acapella gospel groups would do the same thing in churches, where it was all about who could get the women in the audience shrieking the most. So part of that song with the time is Jerome brings over a big gilded the mirror. mirror. <laughs> and he just looks at himself in the mirror and kind of styles his hair and likes what he sees. And like, that's been choreographed in. That is a prop that they brought. That's how much of a peacock this guy is. Yes, yes. I don't think there was a character in this movie who was not transmitting. Um, I just, I don't think there was a moment. There was no navigating. There was not a second of navigating in this. I can't think of any preserving behaviors that were on display. Every moment of this. I mean, nobody ate anything in the movie, right? Nobody drank it and nobody said, hey, I'm cold. You know, even when Apollonia jumped naked into the non-Lake Minnetonka, um, you know, she didn't, you know, she said, oh, it's cold, but, he, you know, it was just not and that's uh, that. emphasized. Yeah. So just a, uh, a comment here. Uh, b- b- before we uh, go on and move to the next movie, any uh, other comments from uh, either of you on Purple Rain and the transmitting instinctual bias? There's one moment right near the end, right before Prince gives the climactic performance that wins it over, where he comes out on stage and he's silent. And the entire audience is silent for a long time in a crowded bar. And that would never, ever happen. There's always people talking in a bar, no matter how quiet the person on stage is. But it's this beautiful illustration, I think, of maybe a transmitter's dream, maybe a transmitting four's dream, is that people are so wrapped with attention by my presence that I can stand there in utter silence and everyone will not breathe. And then, of course, he delivers. And what song does he play? The song that his two band members have written and given them a tape for that he is disdained. He says, I don't want to play your music. He's just not interested. But then he kind of, that's the growth. That's his arc is like he shares some of his glory with Wendy and Lisa in his own band. But he does it very much like a transmitter because he's still singing and he's still the lead and he's still shining. And of course, Prince actually did write that song. Right, right. What was interesting to me is that... um Prince is actually, was actually both part the kid and part Morris Day in the sense of Morris Day being the guy who is seeking to um, spawn girl bands, right, in order to make money. And Prince was famous for that, right? I mean, he had a number of female protégés, always female, um, whose careers he pushed, he wrote, he was so prolific a songwriter that um, a number of his songs became huge hits for other people, such as the most famous one, Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor, was huge, huge hit. And uh, uh, so he was hugely prolific. Uh, so there, there was this element, it almost felt like Prince was looking at the yin and yang of himself in this movie to some extent, right? Uh, I think he was a transmitting four in this movie. I'd say uh, Morris Day was a transmitting three. I was also struck by uh, the the plot of this was quite hackneyed, right? Uh, I mean, it's a plot that's a million times, you know, kid wants to be a star, overcomes obstacles, becomes a star. But I couldn't stop thinking about Rebel Without a Cause and the Eminem movie Eight Mile when I was watching this, right? And it almost felt like there was this spiritual progression from Rebel Without a Cause through the Hardy Boy movies about becoming a star to Purple Rain and then Eight Mile almost being an homage, you know, not quite remake, but certainly an homage to Purple Rain in many ways. Uh, A couple of final points. Uh, Again, Prince was 
an amazing, amazing musician. I think uh, I was tempted to say underrated, but that's probably not true. I think it's pretty well regarded that he was a musical genius, uh, quite a gifted uh, singer and a gifted musician. If anybody uh, wants to see Prince at his finest, I encourage you to Google the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performance of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which he comes in on to do a guitar solo about three or four minutes into the song and just blows the roof off the house. I've never seen a live guitar performance like it, so I highly encourage that. Final thoughts on Purple Rain, guys. One last thing is in the final song that he does after Purple Rain, I Would Die For You, he does all these dance moves that he hasn't done anything comparable to that up until that point in the movie. He does the splits. You know, he's rolling around. He's acrobatic, which is comparable to something that you've said about type eight in terms of like at a certain point, an eight might just decide to unleash themselves from the chains that they keep themselves in when there's something that they really need to do. It's like, all right, fine. It's time to use force 10, which I usually don't use. Hmm. That moment was that for a transmitter of like, okay, boom, let's time, let's, Let's use the reserve tank. Let's give it everything. And I think that speaks to your point earlier of undeniability of the urge, right? It's just it. And in the last, in the encore to what he was doing, in addition to these, you could get this sense that he he just had these things in him that needed to come out and he didn't know what to do with them, right? There's even scenes where he's, you can see him thinking about, you know, okay, how am I going to express this? And then he would go into some other dance moves. So it really was this, frankly orgasmic is the only word I can come up with when it comes to this which (laughs) brings us to the end of Purple Rain Uh, and and you'll have to uh, watch the movie on your own to find out what I mean by that (laughs) (laughs) All right, pretty appropriate to the (laughs) sexual instinct If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs Visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia to check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. All right, so let's move on to our next feature. TJ, tell us what our next movie is. Yeah, this is Moana, the animated 2016 Disney movie. So this was a movie that was very popular when it came out. Obviously, it's aimed at families, specifically at kids. Its protagonist is a young girl, so probably more popular with little girls than boys. I'm not sure. As an adult man with no kids, I didn't have uh, that incentive to watch it. And I actually only got around to watching it this past September. And it hit me in the heart. And I got to say, it has earned a place as one of my favorite movies from the last 20 years. I love it to pieces. And watching it the first time, it wasn't too far into the movie that it occurred to me of like, this movie is about transmitting. It's not about sex in any way whatsoever. But Moana and Maui are transmitters writ large. And that's the engine that drives the entire movie. Maui, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea. Hero of men. What? It's actually Maui shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, hero of men. I interrupted from the top, hero of men. Go. I'm not going on a mission with some little girl. This is my canoe, and you will journey to different. Did not see that coming. We're going to the realm of monsters. Don't worry, it's a lot farther down than it looks. I am still TJ, did you enjoy this movie more? TJ and Gracia, did you enjoy this movie more than? Uh, yes, at least much, more much more. Yeah, Moana's been one of my favorites as a uh, oh, okay. father of two two daughters. I have seen yeah. it many times over the years. And the thing that's interesting 
to me about Moana is that I agree about it being transmitting, but if you if you only watched either Moana or Purple Rain and you were told, oh yeah, this is about transmitting, <laughs> you would you would get you would think these are like two totally separate things. Whatever amount of transmitting I might have in me that I don't resonate with in Purple Rain is like Moana speaks to the core essence of my soul in some ways. Oh, like interesting. There, there are some like primal things in me that come alive when I'm watching Moana. And I, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I cry every time. It hits me every time. Uh, so, yeah, it's very, it's very near and dear to me. Uh, very good. Very good. And, and again, to that point, it's why I use the word transmitting because it captures both of these aspects, right? And uh, not just limited to sexuality. I have to say something I forgot to say when we were talking about Purple Rain. I was having an online exchange with um, another Enneagram person who was taking me to task, uh, saying that I did not understand the sexual instinct, um, for example, and that my term transmitting was inaccurate. And he used Prince as an example. And he said, Prince is an example of why it's sexual because it's the navigators, it's the social subtypes that are charismatic and not the sexual subtypes. For example, Prince, he's very sexual, but he's not charismatic. And I just thought to myself, on what planet is Prince not charismatic? I mean, if there's ever been anybody who identifies the word charisma, it's Prince. He's about as magnetic as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Score settled. Um, yeah. So Moana. Um, now, the father of boys. I did see some of the, what was that one? Frozen, I guess, was uh, a uh, girl-oriented Disney sort of uh, movie. But most of my Pixar Disney viewing was related to things like Cars and Wally and The Incredibles and so forth. So I knew nothing about this movie. I vaguely knew that it existed. I was shocked to learn that it made $650 million at the box office, um, which is a whole lot of money. I was also kind of shocked to see that the budget for the creation was $175 million of the movie, um, which... You could have made, let's see, how many uh, Purple Rains for that? <laughs> I don't think $175 million in acting lessons would have made one bit of difference, though. Uh, so huge, huge hit. First time I saw it was for watching this movie. And at first, when TJ recommended this, I'm thinking, oh, boy, here we uh, you know, I was not optimistic. But after watching it, I texted both of you guys and said, great call. This is very much a transmitting movie. So uh, did you did you do the summary yet, TJ? Not yet. So, no. Why don't you give us why don't you give us the summary? Here it is. So yes, Moana is a girl on an unnamed Pacific island. And this is in the era before white colonization, although the year isn't specified. And she's the daughter of the chief. She's gonna be the next chief, and yet she yearns to sail beyond the reef, even though as her father says, the island that they live on is paradise and it gives them everything they need. Before long the food stocks collapse. And in defiance of her father, she sets out to sea, and she finds the exiled demigod Maui, who's voiced by Dwayne Johnson. And the two of them go through a number of mythical challenges to restore an ancient artifact and bring the world back into harmony and abundance. I thought this was a really good movie. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed watching it both times, in fact. I found something um, new in each one, uh, each watching. Uh, TJ and Gracia, uh, tell us uh, what you saw as transmitting about this movie. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit it sort of as a question. You can tell me if you think this is yeah. accurate or not. If we think about the instinctual biases in terms of, uh, you know, we've, there's several different analogies we've used to, to sort of make sense. You know, the animal kingdom and the peacocks and preservers are the squirrels gathering nuts and navigators are the apes socializing together. If we think about the three biases for like a um, – and actually, this fits with Moana, sort of like a, a primitive tribe, basically, something kind of like that, that the preservers are the people who are going to maintain the tribe. They're going to build the huts, and they're going to gather the food, and they're going to sort of sustain life in the tribe. The navigators are going to make sure that everyone's getting along in the tribe, and it's sort of like dynamics of the group, and this family unit, and this family unit, and group cohesion, sort of. 
And the transmitters would be the people who were going to like go out and hunt and expand the territory. Let's yes. move our tribe from this place to this place. Let's yes. let's go. Yes. And it feels like that sort of captures more of the essence of the transmitting Moana is doing. It's not so much the peacocking, hey, everybody, look at me. It's more like, let's go from here to there. There's something calling us that we need to go towards. So does, does that make sense? Do you agree with that? And what would Abs you say about that? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I ended up picking the word broadcasting as one of the subdomains of the transmitting domain. I was reading about a species of sea urchin that when it's mating season, the females and the males rise up to the surface of the water and the males let out their sperm and the females let out their eggs and they let the tide do the work. Okay, so they never, the males and females never contact each, you know, never are never in contact with each other. They just broadcast, right? They, they spread their seeds out there. And this movie was all about that, right? Spreading seeds out there. There were also elements of display, okay? All the tattoos, the dancing and so forth, okay? So that, you're absolutely right. That was the kind of transmitting that Moana was doing. There's nothing sexual in this movie, okay? There were display behaviors. I mean, clearly the uh, Maui character with the tattoos and the, this is how awesome I am. Another transmitting three, I would suggest. So it's all about display. And my favorite, well, no, I'm not going to say my favorite scene. I'm going to turn it back to you, TJ and Gracia, to identify some scenes that worked for you. But yes, you're absolutely right on how I would characterize that. Yeah. So I think the first scene that I was going to talk about was at the beginning, Moana is this girl. She's feeling this call to like go beyond the reef. And there's an interesting, what the, the first song is called, oh, should I even remember what the name of the song is? I think it's, uh, oh, Where You Are. And it's the song that her her father is singing, and she's singing with her father as they're talking about the village and she her wanting to go beyond. And there was this interesting tension between what felt like extreme preserving and then this extreme transmitting drive. Basically, they're saying, we don't leave the island. We stay here. Everything we need is here. Nobody leaves. And she's feeling this call. At one point in the song, her grandmother is kind of like the village crazy lady who's the Jedi guide for Moana. Yeah, you know, the, the crazy the wisdom woman. Right, exactly. Yes. They've been telling her basically, you need to stay. Here's all the reasons why you have to stay and not go. And her grandmother says, you are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Uh, mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And if the voice starts to whisper to follow the farthest star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. And so that's the... She's having this transmitting urge, as you were saying. It's like it can't be denied, and if you suppress it, it's going to destroy you. Uh, you know, very different than Prince <laughs> strutting around on stage with his phallic guitar, but it still is very much transmitting nonetheless. Or if it's it, it's not navigating and it's not preserving, so I don't know what else it would be if it's not transmitting. That's that's for sure. Yeah, and then there are probably there there could be some people out there who. I, I don't know. I, 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 it would be a big, big stretch from anybody, but saying, well, that's navigating because they're out and wayfinding or something. But, you know, we're, but there's nothing social about that, right? There's, so, I, yeah, I, you're right. It's, there's nothing else it can be other than a form of transmitting. It could be argued if someone were to take this view that she's going beyond the horizon to bring back food for the good of her people. So it's the care of, you know, and her mindfulness of her role within the society. But she has this urge before the food stocks deplete. Yes. And afterward, what do they do after they get all the island back in shape? They go off exploring. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. When she discovered, when her grandma uh, reveals to her the cavern that has all the boats and she learns the story, you know, she keeps shouting, we were voyagers, we were voyagers. It's not even so much about let's go out so we can fix the thing and come back and stay on the island. It's let, let's go. Let's all of us, let's go out. So there's that part of the transmitting. And then the other part is uh, the scenes with basically Maui and then Tamatoa, the crab, the essence of whatever those guys are. Those are much more the classical transmitting. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look how awesome I am. You know, when they go to see uh, Tamatoa and he sings his shiny song, He's 
he he picks her up. They're, Maui's using her as a distraction so he can get his hook back. And he says, are you just trying to get me to talk about myself? Because if you are, I will gladly do so in song form. And just the, the all the lyrics of that song. I'd rather be shiny. I'll never hide. I can't because I'm too shiny. Yeah. Yeah. I I want to sparkle like a wealthy woman's neck. Yeah, that, that, for me, that was the scene was like, yeah, this screams transmitting, right? For, for sure. Any other scenes, guys, come to mind? Um yeah, just to build on what TJ and Gracia was saying before about the song Where You Are and that the grandmother's addition to it, that sets up what comes pretty soon after, which is Moana's song How Far I'll Go, which is a pretty standard trope of musicals in general, specifically Disney movies, is the heroine usually has what's called an I want song. And that's where they just lay out, this is what I'm all about, this is what I want. And what she wants more than anything else is to go to that spot where the sky meets the sea. So the specific line, see the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me and no one knows how far it goes. If the wind in my sail on the sea stays behind me, one day I'll know if I go, there's just no telling how far I'll go. And when I first learned about this aspect of the Enneagram from Russ Hudson, one of the things they talked about in his terms with the sexual instinct was edge exploration and risk taking there's this inherent drive to go to those unknown places on the map. And that can happen in a very literal, physical sense in terms of world exploration, back when that was more physically possible. But it can also happen in, but that can happen today with adventure travel, you know, or, uh, you know, a hike into the woods, a half hour drive from a city, you know, like it's still like, this is unknown. That's thrilling to me. That's exciting to me. Why? Because it's there. And then that can also happen in the comfort of your own home with, Artistic creation, you know, a blank page is terra incognita, a blank canvas, putting words, putting notes, putting lines and colors together. I'm going into the unknown. And even though it's dangerous to do that, because I don't know if I'll fail, the possibility of going out into the unknown and retrieving the golden fleece is so strong that it just can't be resisted. And that song made me cry every time I heard it, even though it's not about anything inherently sad. This movie isn't one of those famous movies that makes people cry like Up or Old Yeller. What I believe got right to the heart of me and elicits that emotional reaction every time I hear it is just how much I relate to that. When I was a little kid, one of the formative experiences of my life was being brought to see the first Star Wars movie in the theaters. And there's a very similar moment when Luke Skywalker is looking off to the horizon and he sees the setting twin suns on his home planet. And he hates that he lives in this boring desert planet. He wants to be in space. He wants to join the rebellion. He wants to go to the academy. He wants to be a hotshot pilot. He wants to make a dent in the universe, which is very much a transmitting thing. Obviously, I didn't know that framework for it at the time or until my early 30s when I discovered the Enneagram. But all of that made sense of like, yes, that urge to go into new places, even though in Moana's case, I'm loved, I'm valued. Her parents absolutely respect her. You know, it's not like she comes from a bad place. She lives on this paradise island, but still there's this pull and it just hits me in the heart every time I hear it. And TJ and Grassi, you've mentioned that this movie brings tears to your eyes. I'm curious to know, is it that part or is it another part? No, for me, what what gets me is the ending scene or close to the ending scene when she makes the connection that Takal, the lava monster, is actually Tafiti just with her heart ripped out. And she, you know, she holds it up and she says, let her come to me. And she walks across the thing and uh, she sings this song in slow motion as they're coming to meet in the middle. The lines are, I've crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They've stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And for me, I think it hits me probably as much, I don't think Moana's a one, but it hits me in this very central one-ish kind of place. There's this quote, uh, it's from uh, Riso and Hudson's personality types where they're talking about the healthy one. And they say, uh, very healthy ones can speak the truth in a way that others can easily hear. Others are not threatened by the one's ideals. They are confident that whether others listen to them or not, the truth will ultimately be heard because the truth speaks to the soul in a voice which cannot be ignored. And that little scene just feels like 
It captures some archetypal, deep, metaphorical, primordial essence of whatever that, you know, is being driven inside of me. It just really captures, like, that's what I want my life to look like. I want to speak the truth in a way that cannot be ignored because the truth speaks for itself. And I hear a lot of transmitting in what you're describing in terms of if that happens, it will make an impact. Yeah. It will change things. It will change the world for the better. Yeah, that, that, that phrase you said, you know, make a dent in the universe. That's definitely, I, I definitely resonate with that for sure. Another thing here um, that is relevant to the transmitting bias, while we refer to the contradiction of the transmitting bias as attracting versus need for the new, I'm sorry, bonding versus need for the new. Right, And the, the, the kind of quip I have about this is, I really love you, honey, but she looks good too. Okay. And, um, and Let me know how that works out for you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I would never try that at home. Right, and, yeah. uh, I'm not a transmitter, so it, you know, it doesn't quite come up. But, uh, but there is this element of, I love my home and there are all these other worlds out there. All right, so this, I, you know, I, I need to save my island. I love my island. It's who I am. And there's more out there, and I yeah. need to go get it. So right? I was going to ask you, going back to this idea of the primitive tribe and the transmitters are the ones who are going to go out and hunt and expand new territory, what do you think is the evolutionary, is that instinct coming up because subconsciously our ancestors knew and you know whatever animals know at some level like if we stay here we're going to like interbreed with each other and our genetics are going to get defiled and we're going to use up the land and all the food resources are going to go away so there has to be some element of the tribe that is pushing for new territory because we got to find new people to breed with we got to find new land to farm and new animals to hunt and yeah. Do you think that explains that? So I, I would say that you're correct if you take out they knew, right? Because the the way Well, I, evo- yeah, I'm I'm using right. no in air quotes. Their right. evolution is telling them even though they don't consciously know. Ex- exactly. And 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 a, and a easy way to put it is that those who had no uh, wanderlust inbred and ended up you know, underperforming when it came to reproduction. Okay, those that had this wanderlust spread their genes. I read a statistic once that I think it's about four percent of the world's population has uh, DNA that came from Genghis Khan. That's something, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, and this is a guy who was out there conquering land. So whatever it was that was driving him. Got passed on, you know, in some ways. Okay, so so yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, again, these are behaviors that lead to an increased chance of reproduction in some way, and yes, being too insular, inbreeding, and so forth, uh, leads to the uh, the group dying out. You can only reproduce with your cousin so many times before it doesn't work anymore. That's that's that's, that's right. As they said in the Mean Girl, Mean Girls, but he's my first cousin. Yeah, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So so absolutely. Again, and it takes this mix, which is why these drives are you know dispersed. Right. It's why not everybody is a transmitter because if everybody was a transmitter, then you'd have a different set of problems that would cause the the dying out of the, you know, the group or the, the genes. So it's why there's a mix to ensure that this happens. Other comments on Moana? Yeah. One name we haven't mentioned yet is the composer and lyricist for most of the music in the movie, which is Lin-Manuel Miranda who, there's not a doubt in my mind he's a transmitter. Russ Hudson has positive that he's a transmitting seven. I don't know enough about his personal life to know yeah. if that's right, but that does kind of feel right. He does a lot of uh, freestyle rapping. Uh, so he's a very quick-minded like that, very inventive. Uh, the music in this, the songs, generally I don't like musicals in movies or the stage at all. That style of music is actually quite repellent to me. And yet, there's something about Lin-Manuel Miranda whose, whose lyrics and melodies are just so powerful, so well-crafted. 
that they just cannot be denied. And when I saw this the first time, when Maui sings his song, You're Welcome, when we, you know, pretty quickly after we meet him, I almost fell off the couch. Like it just overpowered me with just how brilliant it is. And as I rewatched the movie, I found myself having this experience listening to all of the songs, including the ballads, of just how I felt lit up inside with inspiration, imagining Lin-Manuel Miranda writing these songs and how much it inspired me to apply that same craft and doggedness. Because, you know, supposedly it took him about eight years to write Hamilton. Like, he didn't just whip this out. Like, he applied himself. And I don't know how long it took him to write these songs, but it just kind of dignified and inspired just the whole act of artistic creation, the notion of staying there, woodshedding, getting, carving this thing so it's just right. So the song is just, in this case, in the case of You're Welcome, so catchy, so funny, so revelatory of character that it's going to absolutely win over somebody like me who's predisposed not to like that kind of music. And just how much, how inspired I felt and continue to feel even saying this to apply that kind of work ethic and brilliance to my own work. Yeah, that's that's great. I love that. Um, it, it made me think of actually something I read regarding uh, Purple Rain, that at one point the director said to Prince, we're missing a song here, you know, at this piece of it. And um, can you come up with something or do you have something? And so he went off and he wrote When Doves Cry that night. And performed it the next day right so i mean <laughs> you know so uh, yeah so there is something again in this instinctual domain and i want to be real clear i make this point a lot and uh i, I don't want to seem like i'm beating the bush but these are not singular instincts right so you know i don't like to talk about a um, transmitting instinct it's clusters of adaptations Okay, uh, that have their roots in multiple forces, right? There's a genetic piece to it. There's you know a number of things that go into creating these drives that just sort of cluster together. Okay, so um, and this is why we get this differential expression of things in the same domain, right? But that are different. Moana and Purple Rain are really, really different movies. The characters are really, really different people. The topics are really, really different, but they both fall within this transmitting domain. I've got a list of other movies that I think really highlight the transmitting domain. So kind of like you did with navigating, I would say most movies about performing artists (laughs) have a very strong transmitting element. So Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, Moon Age Daydream, A Star is Born, Pollock, Frida, Edward Scissorhands, Adaptation, Bessie, Chaplin. Say movies about political leaders. This is something maybe you could speak to because political leaders are often thought of within Enneagram circles as social types or navigating types. Gandhi, Milk, Patton, Mandela, Selma, Iron Lady, Marie Antoinette, Malcolm X. You mind saying something about that, the difference between navigating and transmitting in terms of political leaders? Yeah, so the political leaders that you mentioned, and I'd have to think about a couple of them, whether I think they're transmitters or navigators, um, particular King, but I think I'd put even, even put him in the transmitting domain. Transmitters are out to make a dent in the world. And one of the ways that you do that is by gaining political power. They often are not skilled at the nuances and subtleties of political power. They're great at achieving influence and power through the force of their personality. But every one of those people that you mentioned, I think, struggled to maintain power. Right? Why? Because of their weakness in the navigating domain. Okay. So the train what I see all the time in corporate settings that I work in, transmitters rise to the top and are able to get things done but then they fall because they don't have the skills in the navigating domain that they need to manage the day-to-day nuanced interpersonal dynamics that are really what politics is all about. So my view is, is that most of the politicians, you know, those you mentioned and people who sort of get into the seats are transmitters, but they're supported by navigators and the ones that are able to maintain long-term power are probably navigators who were able to get there anyway. 
And all the preservers work at the IRS. <laughs> That's right. Or the Department of Agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, some more categories Good. of transmitters. Uh, movies about business leaders. So Steve Jobs, Wall Street, other people's money, Joy, Chef. Uh, scientists. The only one I could think of off the top of my head was A Beautiful Mind. But there's a great scene early in that movie when the John Nash character, played by Russell Crowe, is a student at Princeton, and he's he's looking at a flock of birds, and he's trying to come up with an algorithm that describes their movement. So there again, there's this like, I want to find something nobody else has ever found. It's also there in movies about explorers. So another Russell Crowe movie, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Star Wars, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Our Flag Means Death, which is a pirate sitcom that came out on HBO, which I just love. And as we mentioned, in general, musicals. And this came up a lot in our previous season, superhero movies. Most superheroes are transmitters. They don't feel self-conscious about wearing these bright colors. And they want to make a <laughs> dent in the universe. And it's hard to hold the Avengers together, right? The Avengers are a group of shining peacock stars who come together only when the world's about to be destroyed, right? And bicker. Yes, yes. Something that uh, one of you said earlier made me think of a song. Uh, oh, about the crab. I'd be happy to speak, talk to myself. A song that I encourage people to listen to if they really want to get a sense of what this transmitting bias feels like is called Braided Hair by um, uh, Speech and um, One Giant Step. So you can look it up. There's a song called Braided Hair. And the version that became mildly popular starts off with him saying over a scratching sound, I need to tell everyone about myself. And so he speaks that line and then goes into the song, which is all about the, you know, the tradition of braided hair. And um, it's really, really great. And the feeling of it, the tone of it captures a lot of the, what we're talking about here, the transmitting domain. So you can find it on Spotify, I highly recommend it. Also, uh, like I said before, check out that Prince um, um, solo on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Fantastic. Okay, guys, this was fun. I think we did uh, service to the transmitting instinctual bias, and that leaves us one more instinctual domain to talk about next time. That'll be the preserving domain. Till then, we'll see you. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 